0: we know now about the way the human mind works is that if you if somebody is focusing in the learning process on what not to do they don't do very well Mm -hmm. Uh, if if you give them a positive instruction then they don't have this split going on in their consciousness if you say to somebody Now, I want you to go out there, but be sure not to do such and such. One part of their mind is busy being sure of the thing that they're avoiding. Mm -hmm. So, all of their psychic energy is not directed toward the action. Mm -hmm. Whereas, if you find a positive way to express what's needed, um, like rather than don't fidget, you know, uh, feel some kind of grace flowing through you as you stand there, that gives the brain a positive image to hold. So a positive image of what peace can be would be far more powerful um, and moving in terms of creating a mainstream action toward finding the answers than anti-war. Because anti is just not, um, not a psychologically sound way to try to solve a problem.
1: Marilyn Ferguson is a noted author, editor, and lecturer. She is one of the principal architects of a new way of thinking about the human condition as reflected in her best-selling book, The Aquarian Conspiracy. With her today as she shares her thinking on the quest for peace is Professor Thomas Elmore of Wake Forest University. book of 1980 the Aquarian Conspiracy you wrote that whether or not it is written in the stars a different age seems to be upon us an age of Aquarius the time of the man's true liberation further you said that we are entering a millennium of love and light and yet today we are caught in the throes of terrorism and violence. This being the case, do you believe that we really are at the dawning of a new age? And are you optimistic about peace?
0: My position in the Aquarian Conspiracy was, uh, I would think, cautious optimism. That is, I said, it looked as if we were moving into a new time and that there had been many and prophecies and statements anticipating it, and there were a lot of signs that it was happening. But there could always be disruptions, because you can't anticipate all the twists and turns of history and the forces of history. And that in order for there to be a really significant change in modern societies and modern civilizations, um, we need to take into account whether or not we are going to blow ourselves up or destroy ourselves ecologically before these shifts can occur. In other words, there's a movement, there is a momentum, which is stronger than ever. You know, as, as we sit here talking now, I would say that there's far more evidence of a change of thinking now than there was when the Aquarian Conspiracy was published in 1980. And it's much more mainstream. But we are still in the position that was described by H.G. Wells in the 1920s, I think it was, when he said, it's a race between education and catastrophe. Uh, we don't yet know how to deal with the causes of our greatest threats. For example, uh, we seem to know only how to fight terrorism with threats. and. Uh, a kind of um, eye for an eye approach. And even though we, by we I mean uh, the United States, the West, and so on, we think of ourselves as being on the side of the angels, so to speak, and that we would only use violence in the cause of good. Uh, obviously, that's what everyone thinks. In other words, we forget that everybody. Uh, has his or her own rationale for what they do. If we approach the situation in an old-fashioned, um, we will show you that we won't take your violence uh, by responding with violence. We still haven't dealt with the heart of the matter, because the heart of the matter is what you might call the cognitive error. Uh, it's that we. All of us have the capacity to justify whatever we do and to feel righteous about whatever we do. And if what I want and what you want are in conflict and I can't somehow transcend my point of view long enough to see that you have one too, then there is going to be enmity between us. And we can't do a surgical bombing to remove misunderstanding. So what's really needed is an understanding of the other that we don't have yet and that starts with something we can work on, which is an understanding of myself I think that the source of the conflict this is almost a cliche to say this this has been said before but the source of conflict in the world is source of is the same as the the conflict within the individual within myself I have a whole group (laughs) with different points of view I think that we're just beginning to appreciate from the research on multiple personality syndrome that this internal uh, complexity and multiplicity is not as unusual as we had thought. Most of us don't have truly so called split personalities, but we do have one part that wants to be tough, and one part that wants to be soft, and one part that is more organized, and one that is like the nagging parent and, and all of this. And so there is a there is a milieu of conflict, even if it's mild within us as individuals. If we can recognize that and begin to make peace among those conflicting selves, that makes it easier to deal with the people in the workplace, with the people in our family. And then we have more of an understanding uh, of the accusations and the counter accusations that go on in the political realm among advertisers and in the international arena in other words it's like there is a place that is the heart of the issue of war and peace
1: then you're saying that each person is a microcosm of the larger society
0: i think of it as you know we talk about star wars this is mind wars and if we don't learn to think for ourselves and observe ourselves and become at least objective enough that we can watch the things we do that don't work and objective enough that we don't fly off the handle with others we can begin to to move into a time of more creative collaboration with other people what I have found is that when the international news uh, gets hectic and there's a lot of tension over possible violent conflict that the people who really understand themselves the people who really are aware of themselves and working on themselves and working to get along with others have a different point of view than people who don't think about those issues people who don't think about those issues tend to say well you know let's bomb the heck out of him and the people who have noticed how interpersonal conflict works have noticed that escalating the violence or escalating the uh, the enmity Or the opposition doesn't work; that it works better when we try to find out. Well, what do we have in common here? What is it that we can work on together? And I think that that's so. Part of it is that the same thing that our educational system is now coming to grips with: we have never taught thinking; we have never taught critical thinking skills. Now all of a sudden, there's a concern. Let's buy the books. Let's get the softwares. Let's find the teachers. Let's teach people how to think. So that's one one part of it. The other Key, I think, right now that could, um, that is a, a model for turning things, is creative cooperation. That when things happen like the Live Aid, uh, the Live Aid concert, and USA for Africa, and all of the different kinds of um, joint enterprises for for good causes. Or just people working together to solve their own problems, that this is, in many ways what William James called the moral equivalent of war. That is, people love to work together in a in an atmosphere that feels important and exciting. Um, they, this is the thing that, that James said, what people defended war, this was in 1910 that he wrote this article, because they said in effect, war makes a man of you, or war takes the, the callow youth, or the lazy person, or whatever, and it gives them a sense of purpose and they have to really, um, in, a, in effect, he didn't use that expression, but get it together. And many people who have been in war say that it was the most alive time of their life which seems to be because we don't usually have something that feels to us compellingly important war is life or death but getting up to go to work in the morning for most people is not that compelling and not that exciting so if we can look at what what kinds of things we can engage in together as the people have engaged in trying to end hunger that feel really important we'll begin to get the hang of positive Creative interaction, and then the conflicts that we deal with will be disagreements over style and strategy, and so on, and the kinds of things that um, that people can deal with comfortably. You know, not there's there is humorous conflict, there is any creative person, any artist, any writer, or in fact anyone who is creating something within an institution knows that he or she has to deal with alternatives, right? Well, shall I do it this way or shall I do it that way? It isn't that we're going to have some kind of um, peaches and cream time when there is no conflict and everything is boring and blissful. Mm-hmm. There will always be differences. Mm-hmm. The question is, can we handle those differences differently?
1: Sure, so that uh, is accepting the differences,
0: mm-hmm.
1: perhaps even valuing the differences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As being the creative edge, if we really accept um, uh, one mm-hmm. another.
0: And I think one thing that helps is as we work on accepting the differences, I mean, it's like a simultaneous thing. As we work on accepting and appreciating the differences out there, say that person is really super organized and I'm not, um, I can pick up on that. I mean, it might be nice to have a little bit of that right and that also allows me to come to terms with that little voice in myself that says you really ought to be a little more organized or you know or that person out there if I'm a very uh, rigidly organized person and there is somebody who's a little freer than I am well I could loosen up a little bit and it occurred to me that maybe what we're really talking about of competing values that we could deal with rather than war and peace because peace doesn't mean too much to most people. They can't get a picture of peace. Right. But war and grace, that if there is something that is attractive and beautiful, it can attract us away from the uh, sort of um, wrong headed way we have been resolving our differences.
1: Then peace is more than the absence of war
0: what we know now about the way the human mind works is that if you if somebody is focusing in the learning process on what not to do they don't do very well Mm -hmm. uh... if if you give them a positive instruction then they don't have this split going on in their consciousness if you say to somebody Now, I want you to go out there, but be sure not to do such and such. One part of their mind is busy being sure of the thing that they're avoiding. Mm -hmm. So all of their psychic energy is not directed toward the action. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you find a positive way to express what's needed, um, like rather than don't fidget, you know, um, feel some kind of grace flowing through you as you stand there, that gives the brain a positive image to hold. So a positive image of what peace can be would be far more powerful um, and moving in terms of creating a mainstream action toward finding the answers than anti-war. Because anti is just not um, it's not a psychologically sound way to try to solve a problem.
1: Marilyn, you have, you have said that a paradigm shift, a fundamentally and distinctively new way of thinking is necessary to bring about personal and social transformation and indeed global transformation what type of paradigm shift is in fact needed now in individuals and in the collective mentality for peace to become a reality
0: that idea was that when we have once we have a framework for viewing something let us say our specialty of knowledge or, as I use it, our personal lives—how I think about relationships, how I think about religion, how I think about politics, how I think about my profession—that I want to stick with that framework. I don't want somebody to disturb it. There's something in human beings that really resists having to rethink things. Let's say it's a little—it's um, uh, a little inherent laziness that we have. Once we have it established. And I think the reason is uh, what I have, uh, the way I have once uh, described it, is that in order to have a new paradigm or a new framework, briefly you have to let go of the other one, and you don't have the new one yet. You haven't. Uh, You're between paradigms, which is a little bit like being between trapezes. Sure. So it's an, it makes people feel a little nervous. And yet it's the only thing that's going to work. Well, what Thomas Kuhn said is that even in science, uh, which is built on objectivity, uh, there is an emotional attachment to the old paradigm uh, that keeps the new ideas, sometimes for many years, from penetrating and finally gaining the ascendance. What I've noticed now, I mean, I talked earlier about the paradigms with how I look at these different aspects of life what I'm seeing now is that there's an even deeper paradigm shift that we need to go through and that has to do with kind of moment-to-moment experience and it's the paradigm shift to a perspective that says I can catch my habits and my patterns my unconscious micro thoughts and behaviors that keep the larger pattern in place That if I will notice, for example, I'll see different aspects of my personality come forward. I'm not a unified continuity. Mm -hmm. That's why our stream of consciousness says, I think I'll do such and such, well maybe that's not a good idea, but I'd better do it anyway, and and so on and so forth. If we notice that, we can also notice the habitual behaviors, the little tiny habitual behaviors, like not listening Mm -hmm. to others or interrupting, or dropping a task that we said we would do. We can catch our little tiny rationalizations that we do. What I have found, I, I've been uh, working with my husband, Ray Gottlieb, on a new book that is near completion, we've been working on it for several years, it's called The Visionary Factor. Uh, the subtitle is A Guide to Remembering the Future. And it is in many ways about how to bring about this kind of personal change how the people who are successful in having a dream or a vision making it real in the world how they operate and what i have found is that the the way in which uh... the visionary person operates is that he or she is acutely self observant that is not only catching the negative things or the the patterns that don't work but when by accident it happens to all of us that we do something better or smarter than we normally do or more sensitive if we notice that we just did that then we can capture that we can integrate that as a behavior and that most people are not observant enough uh, to capture their own new behaviors that allow them to change.
1: You Marilyn, many people I see these days are overwhelmed by the complexity of the modern world, and they seem to feel hopeless about themselves, and in many ways they feel hopeless about anything that they can do to really make a difference in the problems of society, and certainly in such a larger issue as world peace. How can the everyday common person make a significant difference? With regard to these crucial social and world issues.
0: Well, the first thing that they would have to do is to not think of themselves as common, <laughs> because if in fact they choose to do something, they're rare. But it's only the rare people who make a difference ever in in a culture. Margaret Mead said one time that never think that a small group of people can't change the world, because nothing but small group of pe- groups of people ever have changed the world. In other words, we think of institutions as being powerful. Institutions don't exist. They actually, There is no such thing as the University of California making a decision, or the United States of America, et cetera, or Ford Motor. The decisions are made by people. And the fact that we haven't really fully grasped the significance of that keeps us from thinking as individuals and small groups of friends that we can make a difference. Uh, the Founding Fathers of, of the United States were a little group of people who wrote letters back and forth to each other. They had correspondence committees and they had a purpose and I think that the purpose is is really key. Um, if you only vaguely have a sense that you want to do something you can continue to feel helpless. If you look around you and you see what's wrong and you have to learn to be able to see what's wrong without getting really upset about it because it's always been wrong it's just that the more attention you pay the more you see it but you see what it is that's needed and as you see what's needed you look at the that thing that's needed that you think you might be able to do something about then you have a purpose you're like the uh, the, the boy who saw the hole in the dike okay you can now have something to focus on and particularly if it's something that you don't think the society is paying enough attention to this gives you even more incentive so you do have a reason to get up in the morning the next thing that you do or or, I guess you would say almost simultaneous with that is you connect with other people who either have a purpose or are seeking a purpose who at least have a sense that they want to make some kind of contribution the purpose will mobilize your energy and your creativity and your ideas and it will also tend to make you less fearful most of us have a little ambient anxiety if not a lot but if you have to keep your eye on the ball because you now have a job to do you're much less concerned with what somebody may or may not have said about you or the, the kind of minor things that eat away at our self-esteem and our psychic energy And so getting together with friends even if they have a different purpose than you but but sharing the fact that you are people who do have something that you're working toward that's a part of it and i think another part of it is is what i call passing the word that if we told each other that we do have some socially useful thing that we're working on that gives hope to the other people that we meet it even, gives
1: even for something like world peace still
0: Absolutely. Well, we we did a project my some friends from around the United States and uh Europe and I got our heads together uh, a couple of years ago and we created a project called World War 4. And World War 4 is the war on the illusion that we're helpless. And if World War 4 is successful, we can forget World War 3 because we all know anybody with linear common sense knows that 4 comes after 3. So, we said what we need is to take that kind of um mobilizing energy that people associate with with war and say hey if we're going to have a war let's make a war on something worth having a war on which is this sense of helplessness that people have so we put out the word in a kind of poster that was sent out there was no headquarters for this and we said to people if you want to participate have a meeting with your friends on d-day and find something creative that you can do on the anniversary of Hiroshima. And at exactly the same minute, all over the world, we will all be taking a minute to pay attention to what we might do creatively. We'll acknowledge the the tragic past of war, but we're determined that we're going to have creative alternatives to it. People translated it into Spanish, German, French. There were people who went to the site of Gandhi's assassination in New Delhi, people. There was a whole community thing organized in, uh, in Memphis at the site of Martin Luther King's assassination with an airplane pulling a banner overhead, goodwill to men. Uh, there was a, a group of people who left on horseback from the Benedictine monastery in Oklahoma City and rode to Texas. There were people in Central Park, uh, at the state capitol in uh, Saint Paul, in the Himalayas, uh, at Mauna Loa, Mauna Kea, uh, in London. There was a whole village in France that participated. There were 2,000 meditators in Switzerland. There were thousand people at a concert in Toronto. This was all done by a handful of people, and all we said was "pass the word." But I think that it's like there's a there is a, a need for some for metaphor. There is a need for image. And for something that feels creative and moves us, those people all made up their own form of acknowledgement, and in the process of organizing it, they felt powerful. So I think that this—the idea is that we can do something that is interesting and attractive, and um, the the. Um, as I said, the Live Aid project would be an example of that. A lot of these other events there's there's a United I know there's a United Nations anniversary celebration, a big media event that that's happened, in um, this is not the 40th anniversary, but another one. And that the event, um, creating events, even small local gatherings, is important. And I think that people can also find that when they're when they're working to uh, educate toward a more peaceful world. They should not look just among the conventional peace activists. Uh, For one thing, the conventional peace activists are sometimes stuck. In other words, like some of them have been doing it the same way for a long time and they're just as stuck as as other stuck parts of the society. But to look for those people who are already positively active in the society in other things, the people who are already the doers, and to not say, well, I can't approach him. I mean, he's, he's a businessman, so he might not agree with me or whatever. Because what we're looking for is that part of each person that knows that we don't want a world in conflict. Sure,
1: sure. So with enough people involved, um, it might be possible to create some type of critical mass, perhaps, mm-hmm. um, that might lead to some breakthrough
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you- winning the war <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. in that sense you i believe that what you do is and this is what i want to focus on in the visionary factor we have to change the common sense okay the common common sense attitude for a long time has been we will always have war well if that's the common sense or we will always have poverty or we will always have crime or whatever uh or one person can't do anything or you can't fight city hall so we have to change the common sense to you can fight city hall because in fact you can but people need to know they need to know what their options are and this is where and when i say education i we can't wait for the schools to educate in this way there have to be other ways of doing it through um through groups, through television, through anything else that that we can use, but we must educate each other to our options, because I believe the answer lies in having more information.
1: Would you say that it is possible to create a curriculum for peace? It might be in the schools, but also Mm -hmm. outside the schools.
0: I think it's essential to create a curriculum for the simple reason that you need to have a complex perspective on it. In other words, this like this little tiny bit of it, uh, like, wasn't Hiroshima too bad, uh, is isolated within the larger picture of life. You, you do need to look at like what, what is the connection, for example, between uh, ordinary, everyday, garden variety urban violence and peace in the world. If people can begin to see that everything is connected to everything, which is what a curriculum can do, then They have a large enough picture that they're not victims of rhetoric.
1: Thank you, Marilyn, for sharing with us today your insights into peace in a nuclear age.